Let's open God's word this morning to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we will read the first 14 verses. And we do so in connection with Lord's Day 30 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Matthew chapter 22, in which we have the parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto them, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We read God's word to that point. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 30. This morning we consider questions 81 and 82. We considered question and answer 80 last week. So question and answer 81, first of all, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by, the passion, by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites... And such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper, who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned, 
and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they show amendment of life. With this Lord's Day, we conclude the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the sacraments. Catechism has taught us concerning the sacrament of baptism and now concerning the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in both cases, the catechism follows the same structure, the same pattern. First, the catechism set before us the meaning, the significance of each of the sacraments. And then it moved to the relationship between the elements of the sacrament and the reality to which they point. And then finally, the catechism asks the question, for whom is this sacrament? We have considered all of that with the sacrament of baptism. And with regards to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as a congregation, we've seen the meaning and the significance. Last week, Sunday morning, we considered the relationship between the elements and the reality to which they point. And now we conclude by considering that question, for whom has Christ instituted the Lord's Supper? And to help us understand and to answer that question, we consider this morning Matthew chapter 22 and the parable of the marriage feast. The parable itself is one of several parables that Jesus Christ taught us that shows the truth that because the Jews would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel would then go to the Gentiles who would then be gathered in. That's on the foreground in this parable. But our purpose this morning is not so much to consider the parable itself, but rather to use the parable to help us to answer that question, for whom did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Who may come to the table of the Lord? Because this parable of the wedding feast is a powerful reminder that there are some who have no right to come to the table of Jesus Christ. And in teaching us that truth, uh, this passage of Scripture therefore also implicitly reminds us that those who will come are those who believe in Jesus Christ and look to Him for their righteousness. So that in mind, we consider this morning Lord's Day 30, using as our theme, who may come to the Lord's table. First, we'll look at the call to the marriage feast. Second, we'll look at the unworthy guests. And then third, the worthy partakers. Who may come to the Lord's table? The call to the wedding feast, the unworthy guests, and the worthy partakers. This particular passage of Scripture that we have read this morning 
reminds us that the Lord's Supper as a sacrament points us ahead to the marriage feast between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Now embedded in that is the fundamental truth that Jesus Christ is indeed our bridegroom. That's the teaching of Matthew chapter, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, and especially the end of that chapter, which gives instruction concerning marriage, the relationship between a husband and a wife. And at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul lets us know that really all of this points us to the relationship between Christ and the church. For Ephesians 5 verse 32 says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So that what we are taught is that Christ is not only our Redeemer, He is not only our Mediator, He is not only our Lord, but He is also our Bridegroom. And we are His bride. And that teaching comes out in the chapter that we read, Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, for example. The parable begins this way, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son. Well, the king here is our triune God. His son is his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, and we're told he made a marriage for his son. That is, in eternity, God chose for his son a bride. And in time, Jesus Christ came into this world to take that bride to himself. So that as the bride of Jesus Christ, we are now betrothed to him. Which means from a legal point of view, we are married to him, but yet we have yet not yet begun to live with him. The marriage between Christ and the church has yet to be consummated. And thus for the church, we have the hope, we have the expectation of one day enjoying a marriage feast, a banquet. And that too is a part of Scripture's own teaching when it comes to this analogy of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride that comes out, for example, in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, the context is Christ's second coming in which He overthrows and destroys the anti-Christian kingdom. And on account of that, all the saints are rejoicing in heaven. And you have that fourfold alleluia. And it's after that that we read of this marriage feast in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto them, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So when Christ comes again at the very end, he will bring his church, his bride, to himself for a a wedding feast, a marriage supper. And that will mark the beginning of our life with our bridegroom.
We will live with him. And thus truly, we, he will be our husband and we will be his wife. And that comes out in the wording here. In verse 7 we read, And his wife hath made herself ready. And the significance of that is that, to my knowledge, that's the only place in all of Scripture where the church is called his wife. Elsewhere, it's bridegroom, or excuse me, the bride of Jesus Christ, indicating that legally we, we are his, but yet we have not yet begun to live with him. We've not, the marriage has not been consummated. But then when he comes again to take us to himself, we will be his wife. We will live with him and enjoy his presence for all eternity. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. So do we long for that day? Are we eager for Christ to come again? Understand there are a couple of individuals in this congregation who are engaged at this time. And I trust all those who are married can well remember how eager they were for their wedding day. There was an excitement. There was a longing. Counting down the days until finally joined together in marriage. Do we have that same desire, an even greater desire, for this marriage feast? For the return of Jesus Christ and the consummation of our spiritual marriage. God work that in our hearts. And may He do so in part by means of the Lord's Supper. For you see, the Lord's Supper, the sacrament, points us ahead to that marriage feast. That's a part of the symbolism that's embedded into this sacrament. And that comes out from the clear parallels between the Lord's Supper and the, the marriage feast to which it points. For this marriage feast that we read about in Revelation chapter 19 concern, it involves God's people coming together around a table. And at that table there's, there's fellowship, there's communion, but then there's also a meal as we will enjoy all the blessings of salvation that Christ has earned for us by His death on the cross and all that's symbolized in the Lord's Supper. Because there's a, a table and though we do not all come forward and sit down around this table, that's the, the symbolism, that's the idea. And there's fellowship together as believers, fellowship with Jesus Christ. And there's a meal that we enjoy. And what is more, the, the parallels include who's around this table. For we come together as a body of believers really to sit down with Jesus Christ. He's present in the sacrament as we saw last week. And that points us to the great marriage feast when Christ the bridegroom will bring His bride, all of His elect people to this marriage feast. And what is more, there's the joy that we find in both the, 
the great wedding feast that we have to look forward to. That's a day of rejoicing. And that's captured in the Lord's Supper and that there's wine. We do not use grape juice. We use wine because Scripture speaks of the, the joy that wine points to. So that what we see is that the Lord's Supper is a picture. There's a symbolism there that points us ahead to the marriage feast, but really it's, it's more than a picture. It's a, it's a foretaste. Something to whet our appetites. There's an experience of that, of what's going to come in the great wedding feast at the end of all things. Now it's when we understand the Lord's Supper in that way that we see that it's really quite something that the Lord bids us to come. To come to the marriage feast and thus to come to the foretaste of it as well. And that call, that bidding to come is really what stands out in the passage that we read, Matthew chapter 22. Three different times we read of this call to the marriage feast. For example, in verse 3, And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidding to the wedding feast. Verse 4, Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all these things are ready. Come unto the marriage. And then again in verse 9, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. There's a call to come to this marriage feast. And we recognize that this is the call of the gospel that goes forth in the preaching of God's Word, Sabbath day to Sabbath day. And this is really a call to believe, and by believing, coming to this, and by faith, coming to this marriage supper to which the Lord bids us. And what a thing this is. To be summoned by the king. This is not something to take lightly. This is not something to shrug off. This is not something to make an excuse as a reason why I cannot come. But this is the king of heaven and earth bidding us, calling us to come to the marriage supper. That's something we ought to count as a privilege. And it is a call that we are to heed. Now, first and foremost, that means believing in Jesus Christ. But now, in light of what we explained, that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we have a foretaste of the, the great wedding feast that is to come, that means this call to the wedding feast is also a call then, by implication, to come to the Lord's table. And that means for the church, there is the calling to administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's evident from Christ's own words when he instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, this do ye as oft as ye eat it and drink it in remembrance of me. He's telling the church, this is, 
This is to be a part of your worship. I'm giving you a sacrament. And now the expectation is that the church will administer that sacrament. So there's a calling for the church, but the main point we're making is the calling for the individual child of God, for the individual believer. Our Lord bids us come to the table. Now, as application for members in the church, Christ has given us this sacrament, this means of grace, and we ought not willfully abstain from it, except for the most weighty of reasons. But now, there's also application for those who are not confessing members of the church. Young people, young adults, there's a practice of our church, and it's a good practice, that we wait until someone has made public confession of faith before we allow them to come to the Lord's table. But now hearing this call of our Lord come to the table means that for the young people and for the young adults, the implied calling is confess your faith. Before the church of Jesus Christ publicly make known that I believe in Jesus Christ and must come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call that comes to us. But now having explained that main point, the calling, we must see that there are some who may not, who must not come. For there are some who are unworthy of coming to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. The unworthy guests. That there are unworthy guests is evident both from the catechism as well as from the scripture passage that we read, and we can place them into two different categories. First, the unworthy guests include those who show by their confession and their walk that they are unbelieving or, and or ungodly. And we say that in light of the catechism. Specifically, question answer 82. The question asks, are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? And the answer is no. And we'll get into the explanation later on in the sermon. But when the catechism does this, it has a very long question followed by a yes or no. That means there's instruction for us embedded in the very language of the question so that we can look at this question and recognize that it's teaching us about who may be admitted to this supper. That's how it begins. Are they also to be admitted to this supper? And now we know the answer is no, so that what follows is telling us who may not come. Those who may not come are those who by confession, that is, what they believe, what they say, and who by life, that is, how they conduct themselves, how they live their lives, declare, that is, manifest, they show themselves unbelieving and ungodly. That is, those who live in such a way, who profess to believe certain things that are not in harmony with God's Word, they thereby make clear to others 
that they have no right to partake of the Lord's Supper. The unbelieving and the ungodly, that is the openly unbelieving and ungodly, may not come. And that's evident from Matthew chapter 22. For there were those who showed their unbelief and then others who added on top of that their ungodliness. There were some who rejected the call. Verse 3. And the king sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And they would not come. They said no. And then the king sends forth servants again. Verse 4. Again he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. He, he gives them in every encouragement that he can. But then we read verse 5, But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. They came up with every excuse why they would not come. They did not believe. And there were some who added to their unbelief ungodliness, open ungodliness, and that they were hostile to the servants. Verse 6, And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Then their ungodliness, they murdered the very servants who told them to come. And what's so noteworthy is that Scripture itself tells us these unbelieving and ungodly are not worthy to come to the marriage feast. That's verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. So there are some who are not worthy to come to the table of the Lord and who are not worthy to go to the marriage feast. And what we see from this is that really those who are unworthy are those who reject Jesus Christ. Because that's what's happening here. For these people who were bid to the marriage feast to say, no, I'm not going to come, was for them to reject the son of this king. To despise Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. And that's really the point and the purpose of the parable. Especially in light of its context. For you see, in Matthew chapter 21, at the end, what we find are the Pharisees rejecting Jesus Christ. Notice that in Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees, did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. The context of this parable is the rejection of the chief priests and the Pharisees. I should say the, the chief priests and the Pharisees rejecting Jesus Christ. 
wanting to kill him. And it's in response to that that Jesus Christ then tells this parable. And all of that makes clear that those who are unworthy to come are those who reject Jesus Christ. And that overarching truth applies to the second category of people who may not come. First, there are those who are openly unbelieving or ungodly. But now a second category is the hypocrite. And that's what comes out in question and answer 81. Question 81 asks, for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? So it's asking the question, who may come to the table of the Lord? Now the first half is the positive. Our interest right now is the second half of the answer. Really the last two lines or so, we read this. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. A hypocrite is one who makes an external profession of faith in Jesus Christ, who, who gives, makes every effort to blend in with fellow Christians, but who in reality does not truly believe. So that is Christianity is a sham. It's all an outward show. It's not sincere. It's not from the heart. That is the hypocrite. So that really the hypocrite is one who does not believe in Jesus Christ and who does not look to Christ for his righteousness. And we see such a hypocrite in Matthew chapter 22. For after some refused to come to the marriage feast, the king sent out servants to bid others from the highways to come, and people come. But now what's noteworthy is one of the individuals who comes. So verse 11, we read this. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. He did not have on the proper clothing, the proper attire for this wedding. And the king immediately calls him out on that. Verse 12, And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And because this was a great offense to the king and to the son, this man was then dealt with accordingly. Verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, when we read this, we ask the question, what is going on here? Why is this man not only thrown out of the marriage feast, but into outer darkness on account of the lack of a certain garment? Well, the key is that garment. The wedding garment is nothing else but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we say that in light of the passage that we read earlier in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, verse 8. Remember, this is at the marriage feast when Christ has come again and has brought his bride to himself. We read in Revelation 19, verse 8. And to her, to the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. 
And the point there is not the righteousness that the saints have in themselves, but the righteousness of Christ imputed to the saints. So that to have on this wedding garment is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And it's when we understand that that we understand why this man in Matthew chapter 22 is thrown out. Because he dared to come in his own righteousness. He rejected the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he thought he could stand before this king in and of himself. So that for the hypocrite too, it's a matter of not believing in Jesus Christ. And that's what makes him unworthy to come. That's what this man was. He was the hypocrite. He was the man who, who tried to blend in. Who tried to act like he, was, he belonged there with everybody else. But he did not believe. He did not trust in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he was not worthy. such unworthy guests must not be must not come and they must not be permitted to come in light of the dreadful consequences of coming as an unworthy guest there are dreadful consequences for that unworthy guest and that comes out in 1 Corinthians 11 where we are taught that he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. That is, for someone to come as an unworthy guest, that is a matter of sin, and that sin only adds to their judgment. And that's so obviously the teaching of Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, when this man who tries to stand there in his own righteousness is not just thrown outside the doors, but he's thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's cast into the pit of hell. There's dreadful consequences for rejecting Jesus Christ and still trying to come. But not only are there consequences for the individual, that unworthy guest, but for the church. If she allows knowingly such individuals to come. And that's the teaching of the catechism, especially in question and answer 82. Are they also to be admitted to the supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? The answer is no. And we've explained the question. But now it goes on to say, for by this, that is, admitting those who are openly unbelieving and ungodly, by this the covenant of God would be profaned. And his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. God's covenant would be profaned because the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a picture of God's covenant of grace that he has established with us. And for those who are unworthy to come to the table of the Lord is for them to pollute that table and that then profanes God's covenant. 
And the result of that is that God's wrath is kindled. Not just against the individual, but the catechism says against the whole congregation. That is, in the case in which the congregation allows such a one to come against better knowledge. The office bearers of the congregation know that such an one is, is an unbeliever, such an one is ungodly, and yet still allows them to come. That is when God's wrath is kindled against the whole congregation. And therefore, the calling of the church is to guard the table, to fence the table. And that's what follows in answer 82, picking up where we left off, the second line. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and His apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Certain people must be excluded. And that's the reason for the practice that we have as a church. We practice close communion instead of open communion. Open communion means anyone who walks through the doors of the church may partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper. But that ought not be. In light of what we have just learned. Instead, the sacrament is reserved only for those whom the consistory is confident believe in Jesus Christ. That is, it's reserved for members of the church and those who are given special permission by the consistory. And along with that practice, there is the calling of the church to exclude certain individuals. Those who declare, who show by their confession what they believe, or their life, how they live, that they are ungodly. That they do not believe. The first step of Christian discipline is barring someone from partaking of the Lord's Supper. That's the calling of the church. But now admittedly, that practice by itself is not a guarantee that there will never be any unworthy partakers. Because the calling of the church applies to those that the office bearers can see are living a life that is out of harmony with God's word. But there's still that hypocrite. The one who gives every indication that he or she is a child of God. When in reality, he or she does not believe in Jesus Christ. The office bearers of the church cannot see the hearts of the people in the congregation. The office bearers of the church are to give the judgment of charity when someone professes Jesus Christ. And so long as they live regular Christian lives, we view one another as fellow Christians. But now that said, there must be a word for the hypocrite. Do not come. That is, if there are some in the congregation who think that it's on account of my own worthiness 
It's on account of what I've done, my faith, my repentance, my confession of sin, my good works. If there are any here who think that we can earn our way to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, do not come. Do not try to stand there. Clothe in your own righteousness. That is, do not come unless you believe. Because that's the call, remember? Believe in Jesus Christ. Look to Him for your righteousness. Because remember, every one of us must stand before this great King. And if we try to stand there, clothed in anything other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Believe in Jesus Christ. Look to Him. Trust in Him. For it's only those who by faith trust in Jesus Christ who may come as worthy partakers. We've seen that there are unworthy guests, but now we need to conclude by looking at the worthy partakers. Who may partake of this foretaste? Who may come to the table of the Lord? Well, the answer positively is those who recognize their own unworthiness and thus look to Christ for His righteousness. That is the implied, the clearly implied point of the parable. The parable is largely negative. Who may not come? Well, who, is it may, who may not come? Who's unworthy? Well, there were those who did not heed the call, who did not believe in Jesus Christ, and the king himself declared they are unworthy. They would not heed the call. But then there was also that hypocrite who tried to come in his own righteousness, and he's thrown out. And now you take the negative and flip it around and look at the positive. The positive then is clearly that those who, are, who may come are those who believe in Jesus Christ who heed the call of the gospel and look away from themselves and look to Christ for their righteousness. And recognize that looking to Christ always and necessarily involves looking away from oneself. So that if we ask the question, who may come? Who may partake of the Lord's Supper? The answer is that child of God who says, of myself I am not worthy. Because of myself I'm a sinner. Not just I do some bad things from time to time, that I commit some sins, but that this is a part of my identity. I am a sinner. And even the the very best things I do, they're all tainted, they're all defiled so that I can't even stand on the very best works that I have of myself unworthy, I could never come 
And us looking to Jesus Christ. Looking to him for the forgiveness of those sins. But then also looking to him for his righteousness. His life of perfect obedience that's imputed to the child of God by faith. That's our standing. So that the one who may come is the one who says, of myself, I'm unworthy, but Christ is worthy and I am in Christ. And because I'm a part of his bride, because he has clothed me with his own righteousness, that is the only reason. And all of that is what the Heidelberg Catechism is getting at when it gives us the positive of who may come, who may be admitted. And that's question 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And the answer is for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that they, that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened. And I trust you see the parallels between what answer 81 is saying and what we find in our form for the administration of the Lord's Supper and the proper examination of ourselves. Both follow the same line, sorrow for sin, a recognition that I am a sinner, but then faith in Jesus Christ, looking away from myself and looking to Him and His righteousness. And then the corresponding desire to now live a life of thankfulness. Is that you? Is that me? Then come. The table of our Lord. Come that your faith may be strengthened. And that you might be built up. And come to enjoy a foretaste of the marriage supper that awaits us. When we will be brought to glory as the bride of Jesus Christ. Where we will sit down at a table and enjoy the richest, sweetest communion and partake of all of the heavenly blessings that Christ has earned for us. Come to the Lord's table for that foretaste. And may God so use that to stir up within us an ever greater longing for Christ's return when we will no longer need the foretaste, but we will have the reality. May God be pleased to use the Lord's Supper to fill us with longing and hope for that day. Amen.
Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word and the clear instruction that points us again and again away from ourselves and to our Savior Jesus Christ. We confess he is our righteousness and that we have nothing to bring, nothing to contribute. that our salvation is based entirely upon His work. Strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ and fill our hearts with a longing for His return. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.